Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I know it's not the top story of the day, but Dolly Parton bowing out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has got to be one of the coolest ones. You know, I have a whole series of cultural things to get to, starting with Bill Maher. And how the people who think that somehow the culture wars aren't important, or they can disparage others for being involved in culture wars, they don't, they don't have the beginnings of what's actually going on. How important this all is. It's incredibly, incredibly important. The fight for culture is everything. Winning the culture is everything. Enter Dolly Parton, who got nominated uh, uh, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, and she, she writes a little message, does Dolly Parton. She writes, Dolly here. That's, that's her name. So she's like, Dolly here. And she says, even though I'm extremely flattered and grateful to be nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I don't feel that I have earned that right. I really do not want votes to be split because of me, so I must respectfully bow out. I do hope that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame will understand and be willing to consider me again if I'm ever worthy. This has, however, inspired me to put out a hopefully great rock and roll album at some point in the future, which I've always wanted to do. My husband is a total rock and roll freak and has always encouraged me to do one. I wish all of the nominees good luck and thank you again for the compliment. Rock on. Dolly. Dolly Parton is the new Betty White. It's clear that America needs this in their life, and they're getting it from Dolly. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's great to be with you. 833-468-8669, that is the number. 833-GOT, Tony, you realize that Dolly Parton is like, she's she's 80, right? Producer Ari, how old is Dolly Parton? I'm checking right now. She's going to now put out a rock album. You know, it'd be awesome. 76? Wait, 76 or 86? 76. She's going to do this. She puts out a rock album. She will be doing arenas. Guaranteed or your money back. People like those who are decent. We don't mind a fighter. We don't mind people fighting for what's theirs. And the truth is, we we don't mind successful people. We don't. What we mind are people, certainly who lie to us, but we mind that people tell others that they can't. Oh, the way you got it was wrong. Don't worry. They'll come for Dolly Parton. And when she pushes back, we'll say we like her even more. J.K. Rowling has created a whole new fan base for herself. Not because they agree with her on everything, but because they agree with the idea that she should be allowed to speak freely. She should be able to say that men are not women and women are, are not men without being having her career destroyed because men are not women and women are not men. It's a statement of fact. And statements of fact are not shocking things. They're rational, normal things. Why would we ever, ever, ever be opposed to them? I favor the rational and the normal. 
So this was Bill Maher. And Bill Maher is discussing what's going on in Florida. You know that they call it the don't say gay bill. That's because these people are liars and morons. The Florida parental rights legislation very clearly says that in grades kindergarten through third grade, we're not teaching kids about sexual identity or gender, this, that, or the other. There is zero wrong with this legislation. And everyone who says, well, this means don't say gay, is a moron. Despicable bigot. Hateful of the truth. Bigoted against the truth. Opposed to you knowing the truth. They are fine. Morning, noon, and night. With lying to you to your face while they smile at you. And tell you that if you don't go along with their lies, that you're a bigot. It's it's just clear that the 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 people who claim that this says don't say gay, not only are they lying, they're proud to be lying, and if you point out that they're lying, they scream louder that you're a bigot. But I have no interest in having uh, respect to for for, for liars. I don't want to hear from them. And I like it when people say, look, 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 we may not agree about everything, but this is just wrong. And that was Bill Maher on his show over the weekend. This is Florida's don't say gay bill designed to trap Democrats into saying they support teaching young children about sexuality is the question. But we can broaden that to anything about that. I mean, I was reading about it today. It's a. I mean, if people don't know, this is something DeSantis is about to sign. And I guess it's a reaction to Republicans who feel that there's too much talk in lower grades. I think it's only they're talking about kindergarten to third grade. So we're talking about very young kids who, you know, as always with this stuff, you know, there's there's, not like there's no kernel of truth in that maybe kids that young shouldn't be thinking about sex at all. I I don't think it's... Specific, I think don't say, it's not like, you're not allowed to literally not say gay. But they, they just don't want teachers talking about it. They think it's the province of parents. What do you think? What do you think? Now, that is considered heresy. But that is a remarkably clear-headed statement that the vast majority of us have stated. Now, maybe the whole bill was a setup, right? The whole bill was a setup. Hey, to get people to want to show how they want to sexualize kids. Man, you don't need a setup. There are a lot of people out there who want to sexualize kids. The problem is there's a political party that has embraced it. Because there are a lot of members of the party who are buying into this whole don't say gay nonsense when that's not what it says. And certainly aren't doing anything to stop it because they don't mind lies. So culturally... We have a society that is, in some ways, advocating for the sexualization of children. And in other ways, advocating for lying to the American people because it moves their narrative. And then we have some who don't believe in the sexualization of children. And those people are being called the bad ones. That's nuts. Now, to prove my point, there was a guest on on the show. I, I don't know who he is. I have no idea his name. Uh, I'll I'll try and get it from the clip. And he refers to himself as a gay rights activist. And I want you to hear what he has to say. 
Frank, I'm curious. I mean, that sounds reasonable on the face of it. I mean, I'm right. not, I'm not, my main concern as a gay man who advocates for gay rights is not that second graders know who Harvey Milk is. That is not the key. Uh, that is not the key to LGBTQ equality. But, but I mean, I, I also question, I mean, does this really need to be at the top of these politicians' lists? Right. I mean, this is a total... It's, this is... No, it's a wedge. This is... This is this is not this is not going to improve Floridians' lives. This is not an urgent problem. This is a dodge. It's another culture war that's meant to score cheap, easy points rather than really solving Americans' problems. Now, this is not a dodge. And you are wrong. And I would tell you to your face, nose to nose, that if we were to do a poll of a hundred gay rights activists, you will find plenty of people who believe we should be teaching about Harvey Milk in kindergarten. It goes without question. I'm not going to take the time right now to get into the biography of Harvey Milk. Of course they do. The more radical, the better. We are seeing this time and time and time again. Now you say to me, Tony, what proof do you have of radical? I'm so glad that you asked that very question. Allow me to share. All right, I pledge my heart, I pledge my heart to the rainbow, to the rainbow of the not so typical gay camp, of the not so typical gay camp, one camp, one camp, full of pride, full of pride, indivisible, indivisible, with affirmation and equal rights for all, with affirmation and equal rights for all. Watch your heads. And that right there is a group of kids pledging allegiance to a rainbow pride flag. Being led by Chastin Buttigieg, the husband of the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. What pledge of allegiance to a rainbow flag hell are you talking about? I want you to listen to that video, I want you to watch that video, and then tell me somehow there's something wrong with the culture war. I had written myself a note when I knew I was going to do this story. And the note was about Stonewall. We're talking about gay clubs in New York and the riots that took place therein. Was that in the village? I think it was in the village. I mean, I've, I've walked by it. The, 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 the gay men... This might be uncomfortable for some, but honestly, uh, you, you don't come here because it's all comfort, people. You come here because it's honest. The gay men of the days of Stonewall worked hard as hell for acceptance. Gay men of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s worked hard as hell for acceptance. And the acceptance was, hey, this is just the thing I do. I don't think I should be attacked in the street for it. And I don't think I should be kept from opportunity for it. You know what America said? Okay. The gay man of today has nothing to fight for. So they invent it. And I certainly wouldn't put every gay man into that category. But there are plenty of people who still think they have to fight for something.
And now what they're fighting for is anything. So we're no longer talking about an idea of, hey, we just want to live our lives. We have now reached the point of, hey, you have to embrace the life we live. It wasn't enough to be able to get it in the streets. It wasn't enough to be able to get it in the workplace. It wasn't enough to get it on the college campus. Now we want kindergartners, and we're told by panelists over at Bill Maher, it's not a real issue. Yes, it is. Because I have Chastin Buttigieg leading children in a Pledge of Allegiance to a flag that doesn't represent a nation and doesn't even represent all gay kids or adults. You'll notice in my conversations, I never once discuss whether or not a child can say, hey, I'm, I'm gay. Feel the way you feel, man. Live your life. You'll never notice that I have never, you'll notice, I should say, that I have never said that a child can't say, I, 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 I think I'm this or I'm thinking that. Kids can say all sorts of things. The question is, what are they acting out upon? My argument about uh, transgender children is that children cannot make this decision for themselves. And they certainly aren't allowed to act out upon it in a way that affects other children. Like, for example, women uh, on sports teams, girls on sports teams who are told that they lose their spot because Tommy thinks he is a girl and therefore gets to compete. A culture war is necessary to stop that bigotry. A culture war is necessary to stop radical adults like Chastin Buttigieg for thinking that he could lead a Pledge of Allegiance to a rainbow flag. It's nuts. If that was any other flag, it would be a 24-7 conversation on CNN and we would be talking about outright insanity and bigotry and brainwashing and cults. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a cult. And I'm not just talking about Chastin Buttigieg and these kids. I am talking about the people who feel the need to sexualize children. I'm talking about the people who want to claim that they still have to fight. What are you fighting? The people in the days of Stonewall, they fought. What are you fighting? What exactly are you fighting for? You want to make an argument that you're fighting for, for, for the right to housing? Well, that'd be an interesting fight. You know what it has to do with the Pledge of Allegiance for gay children to a rainbow flag? Nothing. You should be opposed and disgusted to it because what you fought for, I should say what they fought for, has become a cult. Why are you okay with it? What the hell are you doing? The fight was for acceptance, and now the fight is for demanding fealty and celebration of any decision that's made. And that's where the culture war is, guys. And that's why it's so important, and that's why it's so real. That's why it has so much value, and that's why it has to be won. And may I add, people who should be involved in this culture war... Gay men and gay women who aren't cultists. Who want to live their lives and realize the fight that came before them and take a look at Chastin Buttigieg and say, that's nuts. Who take a look at the people screaming, don't say gay in Florida and say, those people are losers and liars.
And there are plenty of gay men and women who believe this. But man, they ain't talking loud enough at all. Maybe they get silenced. Maybe they get pushed to the side. Don't. The things that were worked hard for to actually make America better are getting absolutely destroyed in your name. I don't think you should let that happen. I'm ready to fight the culture war. I have been for years. I shouldn't say I'm ready. I am fighting the culture war. I don't care if they think that that's a problem or not. I've come to win it. I'm Tony Katz. So pull me closer. Why don't you pull me close? Why don't you come on over? I can't just let you go. Oh, baby. So in a perfect example of... Does Nancy Pelosi know what she's saying at any given time? Well, no, no, she doesn't. Here she is discussing how government spending is going to reduce the deficit. But we have to live in a year where even though the bill's for 10 years, they measure it for 20 years. And the imprimatur said a trillion dollars over 20 years is saved. So when we're having this discussion, it's important to dispel some of those who say, well, it's the government spending. No, it isn't. The government spending is doing the exact reverse, reducing the national debt. It is not inflationary, A. B, uh, we don't want to reduce the um, uh, increase in jobs, which we're very proud of. This president breaking records, historic numbers of jobs created. It's, it's, It's pathetic. The spending doesn't grow inflation is as much of a lie as, oh no, these are my natural teeth from Nancy Pelosi. It's it's madness. And the jobs claim people going back to work is not, is not creating jobs. As of this moment, this administration has not created a job. It is people going back to work, and I am very glad that people are going back to work. No job has been created. Just so we understand. Meanwhile, back in Ukraine, we have some questions to answer, which is, should we even be concerned about this lab story? Is there anything like an off-ramp for Putin? Is China actually getting involved? I mean, are we even as a nation focused? Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. I think there's something serious to deconstruct here as we watch this Russian invasion. Of Ukraine, and that is, that is the very idea of what is war, what is its purpose, and what is our purpose in preventing it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. The, the, the question goes to things that we are not specifically involved in. I'm not discussing being bombed at Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. I'm discussing what we're watching in Ukraine. What exactly requires our involvement? The 
standard answer, or at least it would seem that our operating position over the course of 30, 40 years in in a post-Marshall Plan world has some type of financial involvement, some type type of arms involvement, and certainly the idea of moral authority. Moral authority that we had, that we held. And maybe it was held through the idea of paying this one, paying that one, paying the other one, buying friends. Maybe it was held by having the troops around the globe, but that is something that people tired of. And so we put less troops around the globe and we proactively discussed having less troops around the globe and having less activities and less actions and stop being the policemen of the world. It was an untenable situation. Maybe it was. Did that lead to Putin deciding now is the moment to invade Ukraine? Has that led to our conversation about how exactly do we deal with this? With some people asking, should we deal with it at all? Have we now seen that the policies of the progressives don't work? Are we forced into actually asking the question, do the policies of the neocons actually work? In the meantime, what are we arguing about? Labs in Ukraine. I don't know how that's supposed to help us in this situation. Noah Rothman joins us right now. You can read his work over at NBC and, of course, his work at uh, commentary.org. And, and Noah, I would say that you and I uh, differ politically even though we, we, we both are, are on the political right, we differ politically in, 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 in a, both a presentation and, and in, in certain levels of what, what our job is as, as a nation, what our, what our focus is. But I, before I get into this idea of what it is that a nation is supposed to do in these moments, our nation specifically, I want to get just a, a quick thought on this fight between, for example, Representative Tulsi Gabbard and Senator Mitt Romney about labs. Look, there are biomedical, uh, or bi- I should say, biological research labs in Ukraine. You have uh, Mitt Romney saying that's a lie, and you're you're engaged, you're being traitorous by by saying so. Why the hell are we having a lab conversation? We certainly shouldn't. Um, I can tell you that just the nature of my job has compelled me to do more reading about biomedical research in Ukraine than I particularly like to. And I have found it to be an utter waste of my time only because uh, Moscow introduced this narrative into the ecosystem well over two weeks into its invasion of Ukraine. And then a lot of people who have become very uncomfortable with the rhetorical position they've been put in because Russia has not provided any reasonable rationale for this invasion have subsequently fallen to form and adopted this post-action ad hoc rationale for an invasion that's already two weeks old. Um, And they're pretending it's the heart of the matter now when, and I can tell you this because my job requires it, having listened to everything the Kremlin has been saying justifying this war, everything from the re-amalgamation of the czarist empire we're we're observing you know the tragedies of losing this territory that was gained from the ottomans in the 1700s literally that was something vladimir putin said to half a dozen ideas about how ukraine is an american fiction that doesn't really exist and would collapse at the slightest push on the edifice this is just a new rationale for an already ongoing war and the only people who are repeating it uncritically are very uncomfortable by the position Russia has put them in without giving them a reasonable retro- rationale for Russia's uh, war of conquest. 
And it is it is a war of conquest. And I'm with you. My conversation over the with the labs over the past couple of days is if there are biomedical uh, or I should say biological research labs that's different than, let's say, a biological warfare uh, research uh, lab, there could be these pathogens that, of course, could do damage. But I'm not surprised they exist in any country. I don't know what I'm supposed to be talking about here. Of course it was a Russian in, in, in invention. It's, it is Sun Tzu all over again. All warfare is, is deception. And this is how Vladimir Putin is built. And what it is taking away from is how we're supposed to be handling this, which really gets into this neocon versus populist versus what is American strength all about conversation. How is the United States, as you see it, based on your studies, supposed to be responding to something like this? How has it, and what is it doing today that you think is good or bad? Well, it's a good thing to define our terms in the way you did at the introduction, um, which I thought was very helpful because the the, fra- the term neoconservative is bandied about as a more, more or less an epithet, a pejorative nowadays, without actually understanding the, the definition of the word or its origins. Um, the political movement ar- arose in the 1970s, and it was primarily liberals, disaffected liberals, uh, far left liberals, in fact, who um, had become very discomfited by their fellow progressives who were no longer advocating a kind of Jacksonian, um, Scoop Jackson, Jacksonian uh, idea of democratic engagement with the world, which was combating communism, containing communism, a social safety net, yes. Uh, not a cradle to grave welfare state, uh, recognizing the enemies of America and no, not you know, and, and not uh, welcoming into the coalition people who are outright supporters of the Black Panthers or the Viet Cong. That's what created the neoconservative movement. And their advocacy when it comes to foreign policy centered around one particular policy, deterrence, deterring the Soviet Union, deterring China, deterring Iran from engaging in aggression abroad by being proactive, forward deployments, uh, a containment strategy and the like. You know, the intellectual uh, currents of the day maintained that a hard-nosed realist perspective would compel us to engage with the Soviet Union because it was just any other nation state. Um, it just had a different way of doing things. It wasn't an evil state. And to even say that, to even conceive of conceptions as uh, moral categories as absolute and stark as good and evil is just simply naive. I mean, this is the sort of thing that neoconservatives were combating. And they're Beliefs um, had a fair amount of substance to them established in the 1980s when we did apply a deterrent strategy, when we did confront the Soviet Union aggressively, seeking to maintain both numerical superiority in nuclear weapons and material superiority in delivery systems, and containing them and neutralizing their weapons with uh, idea, ideal platforms like a, uh, an SDI, for example, which the technology didn't exist at the time, although it certainly does now. Um, but there was a, you know, there's a great hue and cry I mean, up to 2010 when I was doing my graduate work on missile defense. It was still believed to be in the international community a very destabilizing invention because you would compel Russia to launch first because you neutralize their second strike capability. This is the sort of thinking that pervades international relations theory. So when we talk about neoconservatism today, we rarely talk about what they actually believe. And what they actually believe is confronting threats before they manifest into something worse later on. Talk- Talking to Noah Rothman of Commentary Magazine, Commentary.org. Well, here is 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 where it is seen that that neoconservatism is about being the policeman of the world. And as a nation, we have grown weary 
of being the policeman for not only the cost, but really asking what has it gotten us. Now, I think there is an argument to be made that having a presence in certain places has kept certain levels of peace and has allowed us certain levels of peace. But isn't there an argument to be made that maybe the the policy of 1983 is different than the policy we will need going into 2023? I mean, there's an argument to be made, sure. It's one that I would argue against. You know, when people talk about, oh, our, you know, we're, we, we have all these deployments abroad and everybody hates them. Uh, I don't hear anybody talking about, you know, we, we talk only about Afghanistan, which we no longer have. Um, I don't hear anybody in the Middle East where we have, you know, between 45 and uh, 65,000 soldiers. But you rarely heard anybody talking about Europe or Japan or South Korea or Sub-Saharan Africa or the European or the American continent, rather. Um, American deployments are all over the place, and mostly they're there not just for training and advisory missions, although that is a very low-cost and high-value way for us to maintain global peace so that we don't have to engage in larger deployments that maybe have a combat operation associated with them. But also it's just a a means by which we can um, deter foreign adversaries because they act as a tripwire. The presence of an American troop in a particular battlefield uh, gives the makes a, a, an enemy that's inclined towards a risky venture maybe a little bit less inclined. That's the essence of deterrence theory. That's all it is, is just making the other guy blink because the consequences of doing something risky maybe outweigh the benefits of doing something risky. I, how does Afghanistan factor into this, for example? Does, did Russia invade Ukraine now, less than six months after America's humiliating and bloody retreat from Afghanistan, did that have any effect on his thinking? We may never know. There's certainly no way to quantify it. But you can't say, and I don't think you can say, that Vladimir Putin looked around, saw the weakest iteration of the United States of America that he had ever seen in his entire life, and realized the window of opportunity was here and it wouldn't be here forever. Now that is something that, that I agree with. But that is not so much a policy of America as it is a policy of Biden. And what I am finding is that more than ever, the changes of the presidency, of the, of the party in power, is changing the political calculus of other nations on a dime. You have to go back to Reagan taking over for Carter and the release of the hostages in Iran, I think in order to see a switch as blatant as what we have seen in the past year with not only Russia, but clearly China. And I do have a China question, but am, am I right about that? Right about... Sorry, the idea the that this... this we're not talking about the country. We're talking about political party. We're talking about who the actual uh, leader is as opposed to a nationwide stance. Yeah, I suppose you could make that case, um, and that's sort of an ideational, ideological case uh, for the kind of uh, policy changes that we're witnessing. Although but I think you can't divorce them from the material, uh, just the hard, tangible realities of what we're talking about now. In a very crude sense, um, European security is so directly threatened that we've seen the overnight abolition of some European social covenants that I thought would be here forever. Swiss and Swedish neutrality, German pacifism. This sort of stuff was non-negotiable three weeks ago. It's now antiquated to the point of being delusional. Uh, that's, a, that's a sea change, and that's, that's purely tangible and material. There was no, no ideology overtook these countries overnight. They just got scared to death. So this brings us to the thing that 
I won't say scares me to death. I don't I don't work like that, but rather I, I pay attention to and, and see the issue, and that is China. China, without a question, uh, uh, as the expression would go, licking its chops, taking a look at Taiwan and saying, soon, my precious, soon. Uh, but there's been this conversation of Russia looking to China for military support uh, in their invasion of Ukraine, which is going poorly, but they're still bombing the Ukrainians and killing U- Ukrainians and, and, and taking land. It seems clear to me that part of the reason you see these bombing raids happening close to the Polish border is that they'd like to see NATO get involved because it would give Russia an excuse to get China involved and allow China to do so. That's how it at least plays out as I view this. Does China want a part in this? Is China really really willing to risk the the money it gets from the United States remember we are the trade partner and or, or is there something new at play that life without an american trade partner is quite all right and they're fine with it i don't think so no i don't think you're going to see china become materially involved by which i mean if reports are accurate and we don't even know if they're accurate but the reports suggest that russia's been uh, soliciting from beijing assistance not just uh, humanitarian assistance, financial assistance, but also um, military assistance in the form of munitions and even weapons platforms like drones. Uh, I don't think you're going to see China do that uh, for a variety of reasons, um, some of which are just purely tactical and not necessarily strategic. But yeah, I don't, I don't expect that you're going to see China engage uh, directly in this war because that would make them a, a direct competitor to NATO. It would be the, the first proxy war between the United States and China uh, in the European theater, and it would also you know, render uh, Russia wholly dependent on China. So, no, I don't think you're going to see that. And the other thing to, to think of here, and I've been saying this for many, many years, is that we've um, been devoting a little bit too much attention to China as a direct military competitor with the United States. They will be within our lifetime, but they are not there yet because they understand time is on their side. China is a rising power economically, militarily. They know it, and they know they have all the time in the world to shape the uh, the events in their region toward their favor, because they perceive the United States to be in decline, Um, although the calculation may be changing based on the West's response, unified and aggressive response to Russian action. Russia is different. Russia understands itself to be a declining power, which means it has a very narrow window of opportunity to secure its objectives in its region before that status closes in on it. And it's been acting very aggressively uh, and recklessly, in the pursuit of those interests with the understanding that time is not on its side, uh, which is why they are, uh, have been and remain a far more near to urgent near-term threat than the one presented by China. Although China is the more um, existential threat from our perspective, it is not the near-term threat. Noah Rothman, commentary, magazinecommentary.org. Noah C. Rothman on the Twitter box. Always a pleasure, man. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz. The new wave of inflation already hitting factories. An interesting piece from Reuters about what's going on at factories, including one uh, in a metal foundry in Indiana where 14 workers quit in the last two weeks. What is interesting there is that there are now pieces coming out about those who regret, regret quitting their job during the quote-unquote Great resignation. 
They regret doing it. It's an interesting thing that people are leaving their jobs. They don't want to do this anymore. They want to be a part of it. They think they can find better here than everywhere, which I don't have an issue with. Of course, go find better, right? Wherever you think you can. To the other side of it of people regretting the decision that they made. That's a very, very interesting bit of maneuvering. Meanwhile, Joe Manchin punching at energy regulators to do their, quote, damn job because permits aren't getting out. You know, Manchin's never going to become a Republican, but he's certainly going to make himself somebody who controls the balance of the Senate while he can. It's a funny thing about power. When you can find it, you got to utilize it. I don't think he can get the Democrats to do anything, but he can certainly make some noise. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today.